the remnants of their empire. A bedraggled convoy traveling towards Syria's border with Iraq. On board, the once proud queens of the caliphate. Now they and their cubs are prisoners, being transported by Kurdish forces across the desert to a refugee camp. These women had flocked to Syria from across the world, the so-called jihadi brides. Welcome to another episode of AEI's Banter. I'm Max Frost, and here with me today is Matt Winesett. Hello, Max. We're joined today by Jessica Trisco-Darden, a Jean Kirkpatrick Fellow at AEI, where her research focuses on U.S. foreign aid policy. Jessica joins us today to discuss her new book, Insurgent Women, Female Combatants in Civil Wars. And we also get into some current events, mainly the so-called ISIS brides, the women that went off to fight for the Islamic State that are now trying to come back to the U.S. and other Western countries, and what we should do about them. So we hope you enjoy our conversation, and without further ado, here is Jessica Trisco-Darden. Jessica, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So as we already mentioned, your new book is Insurgent Women, which looks at female fighters in civil wars. Can you tell us a bit more about this? So the book that I co-authored with colleagues uh, Alexis Henshaw and Orisakli focuses primarily on three cases of women's involvement in rebel groups in civil wars. So we look first at women fighting on behalf of pro-Russian separatists in Ukraine uh, in the Donbass region of eastern Ukraine. We then turn Colombia and women's participation in both the FARC and the ELN. And finally, we address women's participation in the Kurdish regions of the Middle East. So that involves the Iraqi Peshmerga, but also more prominently the women in the YPJ, which is the women's unit of the Syrian Defense Forces. How come you decided to write this? Is it mainly just a curiosity? Maybe this was an understudied thing, or are there specific implications you want people to draw from the book? So in mid-2015, my colleague Ora and I looked around the world at at the conflicts that were raging both in the Middle East and the uh, ongoing conflict in Ukraine, and we thought, you know, there are women everywhere in these conflicts, and we saw very little reporting and very little scholarly work being done on these women. So we wrote a piece for the Washington Post that was titled, Warfare Isn't Just a Man's Game. And in that, we detailed all of the contributions that women were making in these conflicts, from Jordanian fighter pilots battling ISIS to women on both sides of the war in Ukraine. And then that kind of expanded over time into this book. So can you tell a bit, I mean, I have a lot of questions about this, but I guess to start, who, what kinds of women join rebel groups or go off to fight in civil wars and that kind of stuff? All sorts of women. So the women that we discuss in this book, you know, range from teenagers who are escaping domestic violence or forced marriages to women in their late 30s and early 40s who are trying to protect their homes and their families uh, from war by participating in that conflict. So our main finding is that there is no typical profile of a female combatant or insurgent. Instead, there are some characteristics that make women more likely to be drawn into a particular conflict. So for instance, in uh, Colombia, 
your geographic proximity to where these rebel groups are operating is a really important risk factor. But they were also able to recruit uh, more significantly from kind of local agrarian populations that faced high level of unemployment or other social pressures. In the case of Ukraine, it's been really different for those fighting on behalf of the government in pro-government militias, uh, sometimes in kind of right-wing neo-Nazi armed groups as well. Those women tend to be relatively younger. They tend to be um, fighting away from their homes. So they they travel from Western Ukraine to Eastern Ukraine. Uh, and they're also, you know, have a much deeper sense of Ukrainian nationalism because they're younger. They're women who were born in an independent Ukrainian state. Do these women who join wars, do they join wars pretty much for the same reason that men do? I mean, as you said, there's all sorts of demographics, young women, people in their 30s, 40s, older. Kind of same with men, I imagine, for joining. Or are they joining for very different reasons than the typical man is for signing up? So a lot of the motivations for insurgent women are the same as men. So they can range from a desire to escape poverty to a strong sense of nationalism or wanting to contribute to the cause, the ideological pull of a group and other economic opportunities. So a wide range of motivations there. But some motivations are more particular to women. So for instance, uh, in both Colombia and in the Kurdish regions of the Middle East, we see women who are seeking to avoid forced marriages uh, and other family pressures, really conservative homes, uh, and find these groups kind of empowering. We also see in places like Colombia that domestic violence is a serious risk factor. So some of the narratives of women who have joined the FARC talk about abuse from stepfathers or other family members. When we look outside of these three cases uh, to kind of Salafi jihadi groups like Boko Haram or ISIS, trafficking by family members, pressure from spouses is also a key motivation for women's participation. Do you have any idea of, you know, in in any of these given conflicts, what share of the people fighting are women? It's very difficult to gather data on specific numbers. And so what we find is that a number gets thrown out for a conflict and that number is simply repeated over and over in scholarship and in the media. So, for instance, we know that at its peak, women made up between 30 and 40 percent of the FARC's fighters in Colombia. That's a really high percentage. That number has declined over time uh, as the conflict has drawn out, where they now constitute a much lower number. But whenever you see media report, it'll say, you know, 30 or 40 percent. This is a particular issue when we look at the women fighting uh, in Kurdish groups in the Middle East. So in the groups fighting in Syria, women constitute about 30 percent of those fighting forces overall. There's a special women's unit. In Iraqi Kurdistan, what's often referred to as the Peshmerga also has a significant proportion of female fighters, but much lower, probably in the 10 to 15 percent range. However, in the media, all of these Kurdish women are referred to as the Peshmerga. So it's very difficult to differentiate between these groups on the ground. So when we talk about 30, 40 percent of women engaged in these conflicts, are these all are all 30 percent walking around carrying machine guns, entering battle? Or does this include women doing logistics, maybe behind the front lines, whatever else needs to be done during a war? 
Absolutely. Again, it depends on the group, and I think that's why we focus on really specific case studies. But if we look at the FARC, women and men were both mobilized into combat units, and women would even take on command positions. This is also true um, for the Kurdish forces operating in Syria and the PKK, which is operated in Turkey. The PKK in particular is very interesting in that they have a co-leadership model where the group is headed by a male and a female. Uh, and we have narratives that talk about some of the challenges that women in the PKK face commanding men. So like when in the thick of battle, when a woman issued a command, she never knew whether or not the men were going to listen to it. Um, and so women in these groups often discuss a sort of kind of double burden or double pressure needing to fight for women's emancipation in society more generally, but also the need to fight for respect within the armed group. So each of the, I mean, Colombia, Ukraine, the Kurds, obviously depending on where you stand in any of these conflicts, you know, it's either, they're either terrorists or rebels. Um, freedom fighters. Freedom, freedom fighters, <laughs> terrorists, depending on how you look at it. Do you see a difference? I mean, each of these, I think, you kind of look at as a almost a civil war. At, at, you know, obviously, Ukraine is a civil war. Other ones, more or less. What about terrorist groups? I mean, groups that, you know, Al-Qaeda, Boko Haram, Al-Shabaab. Um, what do you see with these? Are women active in them? Even the Islamic fundamentalist groups that are so repressive towards women, do you still see women joining to fight? One of our key conclusions is that women joined armed groups even when those armed groups are hostile to the interests of women. So this is absolutely true um, for those Salafi jihadi groups. I'll turn to that in a second. But first, even in the case of the FARC, which has um, participated in Latin America's longest running insurgency, the FARC itself was a egalitarian kind of Marxist-oriented organization that, again, allowed for significant female participation. But they also tightly controlled women's fertility. So women were uh, made to undergo forced abortions. They had forced contraception. For those who became pregnant, they were often forced to give up their children. And so there was clearly discrimination against women within the group, even though the group claimed in its political platform that it was fighting for women's equality. That division is much more clear in Salafi jihadi groups like Boko Haram and ISIS and Al-Shabaab. And when we address those groups uh, in one of our concluding chapters, we really find that the role of ideology is so key here in defining women's roles within a group. Even so, we see variation between those groups. So, for instance, Boko Haram has not had women take on active combatant roles in the same way that the other rebel groups we discuss have. However, women make up a significant portion of Boko Haram's suicide bombers. And we saw after the abduction of the Chibok girls that sparked the Bring Back Our Girls movement, there was a an exponential increase in the number of women being used as suicide bombers from Boko Haram. And so that group has used women in a very particular way. Are these voluntary suicide bombers? Are these women that they kind of just get to come there coercively or not and then strap a suicide vest to their chest? It's very difficult 
to tell. Um, Boko Haram is notorious for drugging suicide bombers before sending them out on their missions. Uh, It's also possible that the conditions those women were forced to endure were so horrific that participating in suicide bombing seemed a better option. Um, I think the question of agency within those groups is very difficult to establish. And the same is true for Al-Shabaab, which hasn't used women as suicide bombers in uh, as significant a manner, but recently had some attacks that were linked to women. Yeah. So just to clarify, Boko Haram, and that's the Nigerian terrorist group, and then Al-Shabaab, where are they operating? Al-Shabaab recruits from coastal Kenya and operates primarily in Somalia. Okay. Yeah, you said something earlier about why, and this might be outside the scope of the book, about why some women join these different insurgency groups. One of them was seeking to avoid forced marriages. Right now we're talking about this when all that's in the news is the ISIS bride situation, which, as far as I know, women go there, then they're forced into forced marriages with a lot of ISIS soldiers. So how does, how does that play into why women might want to go sign up for ISIS? I think that this is a very interesting phenomenon that should receive more attention. And it goes ultimately back to what is the ideology of the group and how does that ideology create or constrain women's roles within the group. So if we look at the ideology of ISIS, we see that women have a key role to play in the struggle and in the building of the caliphate primarily through their role as mothers. So the forced marriages component um, that women who both voluntarily and coercively were brought into the group faced is really linked to this idea that women need to populate the caliphate. This isn't such a new idea. A piece that I wrote for The Conversation looks at how women's roles in ISIS correspond to women's roles in Nazi Germany, which also framed women's participation in the struggle as one of creating a new people and populating the land in a particular way. So, yeah, before we get more into the ISIS brides, Thing. I have one uh, one more question about this. So I know the book covers a bit what these women do after the war, right? Reintegration of women to society. What does it say about that? What is, do women want to go back into society? Should governments be helping them? What does the book say? Unfortunately, when we look across conflicts where women have demobilized, and this is a wide range of countries from Nepal to Sierra Leone to El Salvador to Uganda and now into Nigeria and others, we find that the space that was created for women within these groups where they were able to kind of challenge prevailing cultural and social norms and take on different roles than their society would allow them, that this space closes very rapidly after a conflict ends. So if you look at demobilization programs for women, they tend to do things like give women a sewing machine and say, go off and become a tailor. Uh, And they really focus on roles that, again, constrain women to the domestic sphere. They also don't do a very good job in providing resources that are uh, unique for women. And so when we look at some of these conflicts, women's political participation is actually much lower than one would expect based on the roles that they played in what were essentially political conflicts. Yeah, that seems kind of surprising to me because I would think, I mean, you've got all 30, 40% is a 
kind of insanely high number, I feel like. Um, it just seems like it'd be a kind of force for progressivism almost. After these conflicts end, if the separatists with all these women's fighters win in Colombia, in Ukraine, wherever, should we expect a more progressive society to evolve, or are these women going to be forced back into kind of traditional gender roles? That's a great question. And what we've seen so far uh, in places like El Salvador, and of course the transition of the FARC from an armed group to a political party is ongoing in Colombia. But when we look at how these transitions have played out in the past, we see that women end up politically disadvantaged. Uh, And that's really unfortunate because these women have learned important skills, right? So if you have spent the last five years of your life uh, in a structured military type organization, you've developed certain skills, be they logistical, be they operational. Uh, And I'd really like to see demobilization and reintegration programs focus more on the skills that women bring to the table and finding them appropriate roles, um, rather than simply assuming that women are going to go back to their kind of traditional societal gender roles. And so one area where this has been really interesting, and I think something that wasn't anticipated um, by people involved in the demobilization process, was that women in Colombia who have been demobilized from the FARC are now living in these reintegration camps. And there has essentially been a baby boom within these camps because women who had access to contraception through the FARC no longer have that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they're not managing their fertility in the same way. And I think this is one of the instances in which you know, the FARC was more progressive than the Colombian government, and that's having real consequences for women's lives. Okay, yeah, so to switch tack a bit here back to ISIS and what's going on right now. First of all, today is International Women's Day. I just, I so thought about that like five minutes ago. I don't know if we're, <laughs> I don't know if we're celebrating women by talking about very, very ISIS brides. Fitting or, day to have the conversation. <laughs> so yeah, to talk a bit about what's going on right now, for those who don't know, there's an ongoing debate among European countries in the United States about what to do with women from the West who have moved to ISIS or moved to Syria and Iraq to join ISIS. Um, and now that the caliphate has disintegrated, what to do? What, should we bring them home? Should we leave them there? Whatever. Can you tell us a bit about this? I know it's not necessarily your expertise, but obviously you know quite a bit about it. More than us, at least. Yeah. <laughs> we don't know much. What is the president's view on this? What is Europe's view? What is the general conversation about this right now? I think that we cannot underestimate the importance of this ongoing debate about what to do with returning foreign fighters, and in particular, uh, the women that were involved in Islamic State. So uh, the president's view and the State Department's view uh, with respect to a particular American-born woman that has been found, Huda Muthana, is that she was misassigned Uh, a passport by the State Department. That passport was revoked under the Obama administration. And the Trump administration has just reiterated its position that uh, that passport was issued incorrectly and that Ms. Muthana is, in fact, not a citizen of the United States. And this is because her father used to be a diplomat for Yemen And diplomats who are in the United States are subject to different regulations. So their children do not automatically have birthright citizenship. 
This is obviously a complex international legal question that is being battled out in the courts, but the most recent development was that Ms. Mutana's case would not be expedited because she is not currently um, at risk of bodily harm. She's clearly being held in somewhat safe conditions in Syria right now by the Syrian Defense Forces. I think that this debate is important in part because it helps establish a precedent for how we deal with women's complicity in crimes. And so to bring back the World War II analogy, hundreds of thousands of women participated in the crimes of the Nazi state. More specifically, about 10,000 women were in the SS. 5,000 women worked as concentration camp guards. And yet when the war ended, only a small fraction of those women were held to account. And I think this debate is really about how do we assign responsibility for the many crimes of ISIS and what role do women play within that justice system? Yes, yeah, so do you expect will be much more, much tougher on them now, prosecution? I mean, World War II ended in 1945. That was before the era of madmen even happened. Obviously, we didn't see, people didn't see women as capable of as much agency then as now probably. So do you want to see these ISIS women brought back here and, you know, quote unquote, brought to justice, sent to jail, sent to Guantanamo? I don't know. What, what should we do with them? So there are some options. Option one is that these women should be tried in Iraqi or Syrian or Libyan courts wherever they have been detained because first and foremost, their crimes were against the people of those countries. And I think uh, that's a defensible argument, and that's a decision that some countries like France in particular have taken. Iraq has sentenced um, tens of women to death in trials in Iraq. And while human rights observers have raised concerns about those trials, European governments were not... These European women that Iraq yes. has sentenced to death? Yeah. Uh, European and also local Iraqi women as well, but European countries have not moved to repatriate those women to save them from that fate. Yeah. The other option is kind of third-party detention. You mentioned Guantanamo. Other options would be, you know, clear allies like Turkey or Jordan could detain Western women and allow for a process of evidence gathering um, and a process of kind of post-conflict justice to begin its course. I think one concern that I have with the pressure now to repatriate these women immediately is that starts a clock ticking on a local, um, you know, Western criminal justice process that doesn't allow for the in-depth evidence gathering that needs to occur. And so my concern is that, you know, thousands of Yazidi women were abducted by ISIS and forced into marriages and enslaved and raped and often killed. Uh, there were reports that Yazidi women were set on fire for refusing to be enslaved. And I think the evidentiary requirement for Western courts is extremely high. And so we, unless we allow for the time for that evidence to be collected, justice is not going to be served. Yeah, I, I listened to an interview well, with Huda Mathana and the, the other uh, Kimberly Gwen Pullman, I think is her name. Yeah. Whose story is also interesting. She was a Mennonite who converted to Islam. She was Canadian-American or something. Canadian-American, yeah. yeah. Um, but in any event, I, if I recall, it said, the interview I listened to, it said part of the issue is that the European courts have a very different process for trying terrorists than American courts. 
Whereas here, you don't necessarily need proof that they committed a violent act. Joining a, proof they joined a group on its own is sufficient. Whereas in Europe, that may not be the case. So they have a much bigger. And I know the um, the president tweeted about this a few weeks ago. Something like you're essentially he tweets t- a lot. I don't know. Telling well, saying something to European leaders like bring these people home. Do not leave them over there. So it's very it's very interesting. Um, yeah, and didn't we kind of go through this debate too a few years ago when the Obama administration uh, used a drone strike to kill an American citizen? Over who, overseas, right? And then, so like, what what legal rights do these? I mean, I would almost think I know, Muthana was an maybe an American citizen. Was the Mennonite woman was she an American citizen? Yeah. But they took to voluntarily join ISIS and take up arms against the United States. What is that? Are we? What are we? (laughs) I don't know how. Where does the law stand on this? So. Again, different countries have very different citizenship regimes. So, for instance, the United Kingdom has been really effective in stripping the citizenship of dual nationals before, uh, for instance, the United States targets them in an airstrike. So then they don't have to report that a British citizen was killed in an American airstrike because that individual is no longer a British citizen. Um, And what they've done with one of their most high-profile Uh, female fighters is essentially stripping her of UK citizenship and making the argument that she's eligible for Bangladeshi citizenship Mm -hmm. because her mother is a Bangladeshi passport holder. Uh, And that woman is Shamina Begum. The options here are, again, really complex. And I think in these particular cases, um, the United States has some of the most aggressive counterterrorism laws in the world, absolutely. And I think that if we are not able to hold these women accountable for higher level crimes that they may or may not have committed, they should absolutely be prosecuted for uh, joining ISIS and providing material support to that organization. But there is a, a broader question as well of the vast differentiation between different countries' approaches to this issue. So for instance, in the case of the dual Canadian American woman, who went to join ISIS, if I was her, I would absolutely try and go back to Canada because Canada's treatment of this issue is... It's a joke, frankly. They have... Shocker. (laughs) Yeah, there was one uh, individual who was arrested for trying to join ISIS and got out after two and a half years. There was another individual that was just sentenced on terrorism charges and because of time served pre-trial was actually only sentenced to three additional months in jail. And so in many of these countries, joining a terrorist organization is punishable from four to six years uh, in prison. And so the question is, even if we hold these people to account through those mechanisms, you know, what happens five years from now or four years from now when all of these women and men get out? Yeah, it seems like kind of a ticking time bomb either way. I mean, I guess the way I, I kind of see it, though, is if you have these American American women, European women, fluent not just in the language but the culture of our, you know, Western countries, overseas you know, who knows how long they're going to be detained in these countries. And then you're going to have people who understand our system so well, really, who could come back here and put that knowledge to use to attack. I mean, at least as far as I mean, as far as I can tell, I've read I've read a, a good bit about this. And a lot of the women really aren't repentant at all about what they've done. They justify they justify their behavior completely. So, um, I know Hoda Mathana is. She keeps saying she's done these interviews where she says how sorry she is. Now, whether or not you believe that it seems like crocodile tears. But yeah. 
Well, I think there's a lot to be gained from like leaning into this narrative of victimization, right? So in some instances, yes, these were young women, they were teenagers, and they're making the argument that, you know, oh, I made a terrible mistake. But, you know, most teenagers don't make this particular terrible mistake. But I also think it's been really frustrating to me as a scholar and a woman and a mother of young children to see the emphasis in the media on Huda Muthana. You know, every interview she's holding her child, she's surrounded by toys. They're really um, focusing on that fact. And the reality is we really need to be concerned about these women's roles as mothers because what type of ideology, what type of upbringing are they going to provide to those children. Um, and whenever Huda Matana speaks, you know, she doesn't refer to America as home. She says, oh, I prefer to go to America over anywhere else, or I hope the Americans will have me back. This is not a society that she considers herself part of. Uh, and so I think, frankly, she she doesn't have other good options and were her best bet. But we need to be really cognizant of the fact that there were reasons why these women chose to leave and the implications of them having spent, you know, four or five years living under and as part of the Islamic State is troubling. Well, I believe it's also Hoda Muthana who um, tweeted pictures of her burning her passport and inciting people to kill them, inciting Americans to not be cowards and kill their other kill other Americans. Yeah, I wonder too if that's like just that illegal renunciation of your citizenship to burn your passport. Probably not, but I don't know. But yeah, I mean, going back to the, how repentant they are, the statement she gave to her lawyer just seems so ridiculous to me. I kind of want to read it. She says, I realized how I didn't appreciate or maybe even understand how important the freedoms that we have in American America are. I do now. As if you need to go to ISIS to <laughs> understand, yeah, maybe freedom of, freedom of religion, freedom of speech are good things. Just have to go to but, California. Just have to go to college <laughs> to realize that. <laughs> hey. <laughs> yeah, but you said in the interview she's surrounded by her, her child, and there are, there are these issues, too, of these women have children. These Some of these women are pregnant. The kids didn't do anything wrong. The kids, we probably don't want, we don't want them to be brought up by their Islamic state supporting parents, perhaps, but we also don't, we probably don't want to leave them stranded in detention centers in Syria either. So is there a way to bring the the ISIS brides home, for lack of a better term, that's what they're called in the media, and it sounds cruel to take their children from them, but it seems like the most humane thing to do for their kids would be to not leave them in a prison and to not leave them at home with their parents who are criminals, perhaps terrorists, and maybe just raise them separately. Is that possible? Again, you know, this is both a important moral question and a complex legal question in that, you know, these children don't necessarily only have one citizenship that they can claim as well. So in the case of Shamina Begum, she is a Brit who has now been stripped of UK citizenship. The UK government has said that it is willing to give UK citizenship to her child, um, but her husband is Dutch. And so presumably that same child is also eligible for citizenship in the Netherlands. And so the question is, you know, I don't think either of those governments is like rushing to the table to, you know, issue that child a birth certificate. But it again sets up this question of, you know, how do we have a process for assigning these children citizenship, issuing them birth certificates. The Islamic State was terrible 
with paperwork, right? So we don't know when these children were born. And so there's going to have to be a process of verification. And essentially, the UK government has said that it will rely on DNA tests. And if it can link these children to a British grandparent or a British parent, then they will issue them citizenship. But in order to do so, these women and children have to find their way to a British consular officer somewhere. Um, because the UK is not sending any diplomatic officers into Syria. There is also a much bigger question of uh, what to do with orphan children. And actually, surprisingly, Russia has been at the forefront of repatriating children mm. from Syria. Part of that is because they have forces there on the ground helping um, Bashar al-Assad's regime, but also because so many ethnic Chechens went to fight in this conflict. But, you know, in Chechnya, they also have a history of dealing with conflict. There were two wars there. There's been a lot of disruption of family life. And so, surprisingly, they've been the first movers on this issue. Well, I know. And speaking of Chechnya, they also have the black widows there and the women. Absolutely. So also the this... Boston bombers, right? The Boston Marathon bombers, weren't they from Chechnya? Yeah. as well. Yeah. So there's this long history of, you know, Islamic extremism in Chechnya, but there's also this strong sense of kind of tribal ethnic identity. And so they don't want to abandon um, Chechens in Syria. And so the Russian government has done a lot of work to repatriate them. Also, the German government and now France is leaning in and attempting to bring back kind of relatives, um, if relatives can identify children who are in Iraq or Syria, they're willing to make some efforts there. But clearly, this is going to be a long, drawn-out, you know, multi-year process that involves DNA tests and x-rays and lots of bureaucratic paperwork. Well, hopefully this all gets resolved. I'm not not holding my breath on it. Uh, But this is very interesting, Jessica, and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. And happy International Women's (laughs) Day. So thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed. If you haven't already, please subscribe on the podcast app, Stitcher, or wherever else you may get your podcast from. And while you're there, please leave us a five-star rating and review. Or at the very least, tell your friends about us. We'll be back next week with another riveting episode of Banter. And until then, we wish you all the best. I've listened to a lot of... I've been getting black, back into rap music lately. Uh, been on a big country music kick lately. Have you? I'm just... I mean, I... Yeah, the weather sucks. I want summertime. Country music. <laughs> weather sucks. I want summertime. Country music. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it makes me think of summer. <laughs>